You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Friends, is fire good or bad? It depends on who you ask, right? So if you ask someone from Minnesota, Minnesota, and got that one in the bag. If you ask someone from Minnesota if fire is good or bad, they're going to tell you it's good oftentimes. It's overwhelmingly good. They're able to survive and thrive in Minnesota because fire gives them necessary warmth and comfort. Or those of us in Phoenix who have gas stoves, right? Fire is really important. It boils bacteria out of our water, and it gives us the ability to make good, healthy meals in our homes. We even use the word fire in our culture to describe something as good. The Gen Zers and millennials know what I'm talking about. When you've heard a song that absolutely slaps, right, what do you say? That's fire. Fire. We attach the fire emoji to texts that we send to one another when something's really good. We use the word fire to describe something good. But... What if you ask someone from California or northern Arizona whose house had burned down from a forest fire, if fire was good or bad? What if you ask someone who had mourned the loss of a father or mother or sister or brother who fought in those fires? What if you ask someone who was irreparably damaged from the fire of a car wreck or a citizen in those Vietnam villages that were brutally burned down in the 60s? All of a sudden, fire becomes very, very bad. Trauma-inducing, scarring to us. So is fire good or bad? Yes, it can be both. We're in the midst of this teaching series on the Psalms here at Midtown. This is an ancient book of poetry, this book of the Psalms, and it grapples with all of the things that we reckon with in our lives, all the emotional experiences, pain and joy and gratitude and grief and peace and fear. And these poems actually throughout Christian history have been termed an anatomy of the soul. A guy named John Calvin called them that once. They capture comprehensively all the things that we navigate in our lives. But they don't just provide us a place to vent those emotions. The Psalms actually provide us the contours of how we navigate those emotions well towards health and life. They teach us the spiritual discipline of prayer. So we're not just here to vent those emotions as if that's an end in itself. We're here to walk through them. Through all the parts of our inner and outer lives that might otherwise spiritually derail us, the Psalms provide us a template for how to reckon with them. And today, we get to examine a Psalm that deals with fire Not the fire that arises from a stove or a fireplace, but the fire of anger that arises in our souls, particularly when we experience or witness mistreatment or injustice in the world. And that experience is something that all of us will go through. If we haven't already gone through serious mistreatment, it will happen. Maybe it's abuse in a relationship, or it's unequal treatment in a job, or it's oppression from individuals or institutions, or maybe it's just selfish choices that people make that harm us. All of those things are part of living in a world where people have the freedom to make choices. Sometimes we make bad choices, and they bring about bad consequences. And the truth is that when many of us experience and witness those sorts of things, it ignites a sort of fire of anger within us. Which means every instance of mistreatment, every instance of injustice that we see or experience in the world, it brings us face-to-face with an important question. What do we do? with the response of anger that burns in us? How do we take the fire of that thing? Fire, that's what anger is. It can be good or bad. How do we take that fire over pain and death and ugliness and respond in such a way that it brings about life 
healing, truth, goodness, not more violence or destruction. We actually learn some good answers to those questions in uh, Psalm 137. So that's where we're going to be this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn in it with me to Psalm 137. Uh, This book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. So if you're flipping there, flip towards the middle, you'll find it. Psalm 137. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen. So you can follow along there. Psalm 137. Lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back for what you've done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heard a couple gasps at that last line in the room. Back in the 6th century BC, something that has always happened throughout human history happened again. A larger nation, Babylon, rose up against the smaller nation, Judah, and besieged its capital city. They conquered it. And the siege was all of the human evil and violence that you can picture in your mind. Raping and looting and pillaging and burning. Babylonian soldiers moved in and had their way with Jerusalem, called Zion, here. And they actually took many of the survivors. They didn't kill everyone. They took many of the survivors out of Jerusalem and into exile, into slavery in Babylon. And this psalm contains an eyewitness account. This is spoken from Babylon by someone who had lived through that siege and was now a surviving slave in exile. And so they're writing from a place of deep and painful memory of the traumatic event that they had gone through. And they explicitly outline a couple of those traumatic memories here. In verse 7, you hear of the first one. The psalmist talks about the Edomites. They were neighbors to Judah, and they weren't really best buds. They actually hated each other. Centuries-long opposition to one another. And so when the Edomites heard that the Babylonians were coming to take over Judah, they came and watched. They got their popcorn ready. They sat outside and they cheered on Babylon to destroy Judah. They even had a chant. Take it down. Take it down. And so the psalmist is remembering the pain of that violent encouragement where their neighbors witnessed and watched and cheered their own destruction. But then there's a second memory. If that wasn't hard hard enough, the psalmist recalls another one. For us, And it's one of the most haunting images in all of the Bible. It's the one that made many of us gasp. It's mentioned in verses 8 and 9. And this is something that, unfortunately, historians are confident was common practice in the ancient world and actually has a lot of parallels to war even today. When a city was besieged in this way, soldiers, they'd come roaring into the city and through the streets they'd look for mothers who would have their babies in arms. And they'd take those children and they'd hold them by the feet and they dash their bodies against the rocks and the walls. That's what the psalmist is recalling here, what they witnessed. 
all of those traumas and injustices are preserved for us here. And that sparks a fire of agony and anger. And you can't blame him. And at the end, they suggest that these conquerors should face justice, which justice should mean, in the psalmist's eyes, facing what they themselves had to experience. Their enemies should go through what they went through. And so they wish for the Babylonian children to be dashed against the rocks. Oof. We don't like that. We don't like reading that. We don't like hearing that. We don't know what to do oftentimes with that sort of visceral anger, especially in our Western culture. See, the truth is that when most of us approach spirituality or prayer or the Bible, we expect to find nice, inspiring thoughts. We expect to find elevating and enlightening ideas, positive, encouraging K-love. And so we don't have categories for this sort of thing. The searing heat of anger, it makes us squeamish. And so we start to ask, what is this doing in the Bible? And can we just skip it? Can we get it out of here? There's actually many recent Christian publications, books of hymns and songs and prayers, where this psalm has been edited down and that last stanza has been cut out entirely because we don't want to deal with it. Friends, oftentimes in our lives, we are either embarrassed or fearful of addressing the deep sort of pain and anger that we feel. And so we just choose to ignore it or deny it or suppress it. And there's a couple different reasons I think we do that. One of the reasons is an internal reason. We often don't want to acknowledge that that sort of pain or anger really does live in us. We like to think of ourselves as good or virtuous people. And good and virtuous people don't get angry. They're calm all the time. Good and virtuous people don't get mad. You mad, bro? No, no, no. I'm not mad. I'm not angry. I'm a good person. See, oftentimes we don't want to acknowledge that deep within us there might be some challenging negative emotion that we have to work through. We want to believe that we're not really affected by the world in that way, that we're somehow above those emotions. This has been true in my life. During the first few months when Emily and I were dating, those first few months when you date, you're kind of getting to know each other a little bit. You're getting used to each other's reactions and also the way that you respond to your comments to one another. And that also meant that at times we would say things that would make each other angry, but we didn't really know what anger looked like in the other one because we hadn't been with each other very long. And so there were times when Emily would say something that made me genuinely angry and my posture would change, but she didn't know what that looked like. And so she'd ask me, hey, did I say something to make you angry? And instinctively, my response was often, no, 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 you didn't make me angry. I deflected, I said something different, because I didn't want her to think that I was really angry at her. That would require me to go through the pain of addressing what she had said. That would require me to acknowledge that I might actually have been affected negatively by her. That's messy, so I don't want to deal with that. I'll say, well, no, I was annoyed at this, or I didn't sleep well, or whatever the excuse was. I'd come up with an excuse not to acknowledge that I really was deeply angry. But here's the ugly and pervasive side of that response, friends. By lying about my anger, I was refusing to allow Emily to really know me. And so eventually, over time, after I did that enough, she never really knew what anger looked like in me. And so I would respond when I was feeling anger, but not tell her. And so she'd have no idea what anger in Clint looked like. She'd have no idea and no capacity to help me walk through it. And in the long term, it only ever led to confusion and pain in our relationship. What in the short term seemed like a solution in the long term did not provide healing. And that all started because I didn't want to acknowledge that anger and pain really was deep within me and I had to deal with it. So that's the first thing. There's an internal reason oftentimes that we don't want to address pain and anger. But there's also often an external reason. We often don't want to acknowledge the pain and anger in us because we don't want to really name the bad that's out there. 
It's hard to do that. We don't want to acknowledge that there really are horrors in the world that should spark fire of anger in us. Because we prefer a soft, comfortable world. Our culture has trained us to want a soft, comfortable world, to ignore or deny or suppress emotion. Think about the things we often say to one another when we hear negative emotions that are going on in someone else's life. Oh, you're going through that. That's too bad. Well, everything happens for a reason. We say that to one another. We say platitudes to each other all the time. Or we try to sort of numb them or medicate them away. Oh, you're not feeling good? Here, take this drug. It'll make you feel better. Here's a sugary food or a drink or a coffee or whatever else. It'll make you feel better. Don't worry. Those feelings of anger, those will go away. Just keep scrolling. Find the next funny cat video, and you'll be fine in no time. That's what we do. Because we don't want to acknowledge that things really are that messed up. We live in a culture of comfort and good feelings. And then, oftentimes, that leaks into our spirituality. So we seek religious spaces that reinforce that comfort. We love songs that don't challenge us too much, that make us feel good. Speakers that make us feel good. People who sound or look or act or vote just like us. Many times we prefer a soft and comfortable Jesus. The one with the pillowy white robes and the long, beautiful head and shoulders hair. Maybe he's carrying a little lamb. We like that picture of Jesus. There's actually a pastor who founded a church that now has expanded across the world, has more than 150,000 members. It's one of the most influential churches in the Western world. And this pastor was quoted as saying that their mission for every church service was to, quote, leave people feeling better about themselves than when they arrived. That was the goal of their church services. But here's the truth, friends. That sort of comfort spirituality that softens or ignores or suppresses, as much as it might produce a short-term sanitizing for us, it ultimately is a disservice in the long term. Because suppressing pain and anger doesn't make them go away. Burying what we feel is never the path to healing. It's only ever the path to dishonesty. And so when we suppress in that way, we become people who have no language or framework for really dealing with the pain that caused it in us. And we prevent ourselves from experiencing a true and deep understanding of our souls and the world. And the Bible The scriptures, the Psalms, know this. And so they never want us to suppress in this way. It's actually really amazing the things that are said in the Psalms, like you saw today. Shocking that it gives space for this sort of thing. That's in the Bible? It's crazy. One third of the Psalms are laments. A third. You flip through there and you're constantly seeing pain just brought out before God. The scriptures constantly speak to pain and pleasure, barrenness and birth, cross and crown. And that means that there is room for anything we feel here before God, including anger against mistreatment or injustice. The scriptures and a life with Jesus is a great exemplification of what the great Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, once said. He said, if it's human, it's mentionable, and if it's mentionable, it's manageable. But only when we've mentioned it can it be managed. And so this psalm, in spite of how visceral it is, In spite of how hard those words are to read or hear, it teaches us three crucially important things about how to deal with our anger over real mistreatment and injustice. What we do with it. We don't suppress it, we don't ignore it, we deal with it. And we deal with it by doing three things. We are honest about our anger. We pray through our anger. And then we limit our anger. We're honest about it, we pray through it, and we limit it. First, we're honest about our anger. And notice this passage, how it starts. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. That is, we're in a foreign place remembering the destruction of our home. 
He says, on the willows there, we hung up our harps. That is, we gave up singing or playing music. We gave up celebratory sounds because we couldn't sing them anymore. What we had been through caused us too much pain. And in the middle of that, the captors in Babylon start to mock these folks who've been ripped from their homes. They say, sing us one of those songs of Zion. These exiles who've been stripped of everything, who've watched their neighbors and friends killed and abused, now they're being mocked and ridiculed. Their slave drivers are saying, hey, you, yeah, yeah, you over there with the bruises and the scars that we inflicted on you, hey, sing us one of those songs you used to sing. You know the ones that talk about how good and great and powerful your God is? How he'd protect you and how he loves you? Sing one of those. Or about how great your city is that we destroyed? Sing one of those. No, go ahead. It'll make you feel better. Suppress your anger. Sing a song. It's dehumanizing. They're pressing in more and more. And they're telling them to just move beyond their anger. But notice what the psalmist does. He refuses to sing. He doesn't pick up his harp. He leaves it hanging there. Then he says, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That is, how can we celebrate? How can we sing when we have this sort of injustice that we've gone through? This sort of pain that we feel. How could we sing? And so, in this moment, the psalmist, he could have given up. He could have said, you know what? You're right. Fine. I'll move on. I'll sing. I'll... Maybe it will make me feel bad. I'll just kind of push this thing down. The psalmist could have said that, but he doesn't. Instead, the psalmist remembers. He remembers the anger that's within him over the injustice that he's felt. And it leads him to silence, to not singing, to clinging the tongue to the roof of his mouth. It's a form of resistance for him. Because the psalmist knows that suppressing his anger would mean being out of touch with the reality of the injustice and mistreatment of his people. He knows that the anger he feels is a legitimate and good response to what they've been through. He should be angry about the heinous acts that have been inflicted upon him. He shouldn't just suppress it. He shouldn't just roll over. See, friends, anger, oftentimes, over injustice, is like an emotional alarm going off in us. It's a blaring notification that someone or something has been harmed, that injustice has been inflicted, that pain is wrongly winning the day. And if we just ignore that alarm, if we just cover it up, then we'll ultimately be people who lose the power to resist that sort of evil in the world. The fire of anger over injustice that we feel is the catalyst that brings us to our feet to start to work to resolve and heal it. Anger is the thing that sparks our concern towards the violations of life around us. Anger, oftentimes, is the first sign that we care. And the Bible articulates that all over the place, by the way. It's not just in this psalm. In the New Testament, there's a letter that circulated around the early church. Uh, We call it Ephesians in our Bible today. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says this. It's something really, really unique. It might be hard to interpret, but this is what Paul says. Be angry. Really hard to interpret what he's saying there, right? Be angry. But he continues. There's an ellipsis here. Be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. Paul's saying, be angry at injustice. Be angry when things go wrong. Be angry at the broken world because that's not the way it should be. Be sure that your response is not leading you to inflict more violence, which we're going to talk about in a sec, but be angry at that thing. That's a good sign. And Jesus exemplifies the same thing for us, by the way. Again, that soft, white, pillowy Jesus, that is a part of Jesus. He's peaceful. But he also experienced anger. This is in Mark chapter 3. He's entering the synagogue with religious leaders all around him on the Sabbath. Listen to this story. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. 
And they were watching him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come forward. And then he said to them, that's the religious leaders around him, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and the man was restored. His hand was restored. Why is Jesus angry there? Because of mistreatment, injustice. These religious people were so caught up in maintaining their self-righteousness that they were actually preventing healing, which was the whole point of the religion. The whole point of the religion was to bring about peace and healing in life, and they were missing it. That made Jesus angry. That sort of self-righteousness. It causes mistreatment, injustice. That provokes anger in Jesus. And to be clear, there are plenty of times in the Bible where we're warned about what anger can be. Remember, it's a fire. It can go good or bad. It's not saying that anger is always good in every situation and the way you express it is always good. We need it to burn for the right reasons. And Jesus is telling us that the fire of anger is a good emotion when it's expressed towards something bad that's threatening something good. It's a good emotion when it's expressed towards something bad that's threatening something good. We should be angry when that happens. We should be angry when life is being turned into death or when health is being turned into injury or when joy is being turned into pain. And if we don't feel that, or if we suppress that, then we're actually preventing ourselves from rightly responding in love and compassion to the world. So the Bible and this psalm explicitly, it's telling us, be angry, be honest about your anger and the things you feel. But don't just stop with honesty. Being able to name something doesn't necessarily mean you actually know how to navigate that thing. Well, you start with being honest, but then you have to do something with it. And this psalm teaches us to pray through our anger. Notice in verse 7, when this anger kind of hits the boiling point, the psalmist doesn't just violently spew his angry curses everywhere. Instead, he addresses his anger in prayer with God. He takes all of what he's feeling and he brings it before God and he processes it in God's presence. All of those hard feelings, he opens them up and then he allows the presence and character of God to shape them, to mold them. That's what the Bible calls us to do. Not to suppress, but also not to let the feelings run wild. Pray through them. And allow those feelings to be shaped into the sort of action and behavior that might produce life, healing, goodness, peace. There's a great theologian named Eugene Peterson uh, who puts it this way in his book on the Psalms called Answering God. He says, prayer, we think, means presenting ourselves before God so that he will be pleased with us. And so we put on our Sunday best in prayers. It's easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs. It's nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our anger. And so we commonly suppress our negative emotions. Or, when we do express them, we do it far from the presence of God, ashamed or embarrassed to be seen in these curse-stained bib overalls. But when we pray the Psalms, these classic prayers of God's people, we find that that will not do. We must pray who we actually are not who we think we should be. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. In prayer, all is not sweetness and light. The way of prayer is not to cover our unlovely emotions so that they will appear more respectable, but to expose them so that they can be enlisted in the work of the kingdom. So in those moments where you're overcome with anger at injustice or mistreatment, in those moments when that fire is burning in you, 
Bring it before God. Pray through it. Don't shout them into the void. Don't go and vent. Don't just tweet about it. Bring it before God. There's a great uh, little quip from Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on the Psalms. He says, It is an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God, knowing that they will be taken seriously. And that leads us right into the third thing that we learn from this psalm. Uh, the psalmist doesn't just uh, be, he's not just honest about his anger, he doesn't just pray through his anger, he also limits his anger. And it doesn't seem like it at first, right? That last line makes it seem like he's a little out of control. But look closely. In those last lines, the psalmist never once says that he's going to go get revenge. He never once says that he is going to go make it right. He never once says, God, give me the strength to bring about vengeance. He doesn't say he's going to go dash their heads against the rocks. Instead, he says, you remember, O Lord. You remember. And we discussed this word remember a couple weeks ago. Some of you were here for it. That word all throughout the New Testament or Old Testament, it's not just about mental recall. It's not just remembering what happened yesterday. It's actually about intentional action. For God to remember is for God to act on his promises, to act on his promises of life and justice. And so the psalmist is calling for God to hear the cries of those who have been mistreated and then to act with justice. That's what he's doing at the end here. He sees God as a just judge. There's a scholar named Michael Wilcock who points this out uh, in his writing on the psalm. He actually sees this alongside many other scholars as a sort of legal trial in front of a judge. So in this psalm, there's a reporting of evidence. There's a presentation of the truth of what has happened just like in a courtroom. And then there's actually an unveiling or revealing of witnesses, the Edomites who were there and watched it all happen. And then at the end, there's a call for a verdict, for something to be done, for the judge to bring justice. The psalmist suggests a verdict. That's what he's doing in the last line. He suggests what he thinks justice should look like. And that still seems pretty violent to us, right? His suggestion seems a little violent, but I think there's some important things to remember about that last line as well. First, remember the context here. This is a deeply personal prayer. It's full of emotion. This is not a law or a command. It's important to remember that when you open up your Bible. Not everything is in the same genre, and that means you don't treat everything in quite the same way. This is an emotionally charged prayer. The Bible is not advocating for this violence in Psalm 137. In fact, the Bible regularly advocates against this sort of violence all over its pages. So remember that when we read this last line. It's alarming, but it's not a law or command. Second thing to remember is that this, what the psalmist is asking for here, was actually just the common cultural conception of what simple justice looked like. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, you did this to me, and so this will be done back to you. And that was actually, in the ancient world, a way to limit revenge. Because what often happens is that when you seek revenge for someone, you end up doing a little bit more. You end up bringing a little bit more pain on them, and then they want to bring a little bit more pain on you. And violence keeps going excessively beyond what it should. And so it was actually a way to limit anger. So what he's saying is, hey, this is the definition of justice. This is what I think the judge should do. He suggests it. But then third thing, most importantly, he leaves the verdict at the feet of God. He suggests what he thinks justice should look like, but then he trusts God to bring about what justice really should look like. He leaves it in the hands of the judge. And so this psalm, it's not a call to arms. It's a call to faith. It's the faith that in the midst of all of our human violence, as egregious and ugly as it is, there is a judge who truly knows all, who truly loves all, and who truly brings justice for all. That's the assumption of the psalmist. 
He's not letting his anger run wild. He's not seeking revenge. He's bringing all of the messiness of that anger before God in prayer. He's processing it. And then he's saying to God, you do something about it. You bring justice. Because I trust that you really can. I believe that you really can. And that you're actually the only one who can. He says all this because he assumes that God is a just judge. And if we're ever going to deal with our anger well, friends, it always has to come from that practice. It always has to come from a place of being honest and praying through it and then limiting our anger by leaving it at the feet of God in a deep awareness that he is just, that he really does bring justice. And if we don't do that, then our anger will always end up consuming us in one way or another. It'll always happen. If we don't trust that God is a just judge who brings justice, then we will never become people who always want to take things into our own hands. In fact, we love that idea in our culture. Think about how popular revenge movies are. Django Unchained, Count of Monte Cristo, The Equalizer, one, two, three, and a TV show. Liam Neeson has made 13 of the same movie. They're all about revenge. One's on a plane, one's on a train, doesn't matter. He's taking revenge. That's what Liam Neeson has made his career about. We are people obsessed with vengeance, with bringing judgment on everyone else out there. And many of us don't do it like Liam Neeson and Taken. At least I don't think so. I really hope not. (laughs) But many of us do it in other really petty ways. We try to bring about vengeance through a a passive-aggressive comment, a little dig at someone we don't like or who hurt us. We cut people off in traffic because they cut us off. right? Maybe we give them a nice little hand motion as well. We gossip, we criticize, we give rebuttals and so forth and on and on and on. Maybe we don't even practice it outwardly. Maybe the thing that we really love to do is just keep all that vengeance inside and think things about people or say things about people to ourselves. It tastes good to do that sometimes. Friends, when we fail to limit our anger and trust that God is a just judge, then it will poison the well of our soul eventually. It will make us bitter instead of free defensive instead of honest, violent instead of peaceful, and it will always eat us alive. There's a great author named Frederick Buechner who put it this way. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you're given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Friends, unless we know that there is a God who alone has the right and power and knowledge to judge, who alone will bring goodness and justice. Unless we know that, then our response will always be to pick up a sword and take matters into our own hands, literally or figuratively. It's the story of world history. We will always become people when we try to take matters into our own hands who get sucked into the very violence that we're trying to end. And so the psalmist is teaching us, when we feel that white-hot heat of anger over mistreatment and injustice, we need to learn how to limit it and to trust God to really bring about peace and justice on the other side of it. And we, in this room, in 2023, have a unique capacity to practice this because we know something that the psalmist didn't quite know in full when he wrote these words. See, when we're on fire with anger, when we grieve the deaths of our own little ones, like the psalmist, when we cry out to God, shouldn't someone pay for this? We already know God's answer. 
God says, of course someone should pay. And I did. In Jesus. My own precious little one took on the pain of injustice. He was dashed against the cross like your little ones on the rock. And out of pure love, he experienced justice for all the wrongs that have been done to you and all the wrongs that you've done to others. He took on the debt of all of those things so that no one would have to spend their life consumed by anger that drives them to vengeance. He took on all of the violence of anger so that you wouldn't have to violently chase justice and bring it by your own hands. God's little one died so that we wouldn't need to chase down anyone else's. And that, friends, is a remarkable resolution that we can keep in our minds when we deal, in our hearts when we deal with anger. That's the truth that enables us to become people who can experience freedom on the other side of our anger rather than remaining captive to it. Because we know Jesus and the cross have the final word on anger towards enemies. And Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Which sounds a little soft when we're feeling that anger, but remember what he says here. Loving your enemies isn't ignorant of the fact that they're enemies. Loving your enemies doesn't say excuse what they've done. It actually means explicitly name it. Be driven by the anger towards naming who your enemy is. Who is the enemy of life? Who is bringing about destruction? Our anger in Christ is the thing that reveals to us the enemies of life and goodness and peace and then drives us to the cross so that on the other side of it, we can live with active compassion for victims who have been harmed. When we practice this with the cross in mind, it starts to transform us because we find that that anger, it provided the spark for us to bring about justice, but we only find love and compassion to be the sustaining fuel to bring about justice. The cross always reminds us that we are as much an enemy as anyone else. And so it says we're driven to the cross with anger, and on the other side, we're driven by love. Because the cross reminds us that justice has already come, that Jesus has taken care of it, and that he will take care of it. Anger drives us to the cross, and love drives us beyond it. And so when we gaze upon the cross as Christians, we can be honest about our anger. We can pray through our anger. And then we can limit it because Jesus brings justice and peace. We can commit to resisting injustice, not out of vengeance, but out of love, out of compassion. It's ultimately in the cross, the fire of our anger can burn for good.